0: The story that was just read is one of the most well-known in all of ancient literature and also one of the most troubling of all of, of literature. But I do want to say um, a few words of introduction before we, uh, before we dive into that um, uh, beautiful but, uh, but difficult story. There's not a great ledge here. Let me just arrange so that I can not be doing this. I think the, the, the first time we were here was July 4th. It was just a few days after we had moved in. And um, uh, and then we were here also the other day for the particularization service. At least Mandy and I were, and my whole family's here. We had to sneak out uh, because uh, the kids were at youth group and, and get back there, so we didn't have a chance to say hi to anybody. But I also had a chance to paint with a few of you a few uh, months ago with, when the offices were being set up. So um, I've gotten to meet a, a number of people. Uh, we... I, I'm originally from Michigan, um, grew up there and went to Purdue, and, uh, and then we, I, I lived in Atlanta for 10 years, uh, we moved to St. Louis for seminary, and then for the last 12 years we've been in San Diego. So here's the big question is, uh, where have you hidden spring? Because this is not what we signed up for when we came here and i feel like there's still some type of april fool's joke going on that uh that is still 30 degrees outside and um we we are ready for spring to be here especially after living in southern california for for that long but it is good to be back closer to home it's good to be around people um, who speak our language who are familiar with the culture and um, greenwood has been a good landing place for us we've we're living right downtown greenwood If you can call it downtown old town Um, and it's it's been a great central place for us to to gather as a church and god has provided a um a beautiful house down there it's also a joy to see the presbytery collaborating to to plant this church and not just this one but other churches are in the works for for planting and so to be able to follow on the heels of fountain square and to see the particularization the other night and and um, just see the excitement the energy of the presbytery is energizing for us and and then as we've been down there we just see God providing in various ways and uh, really surprising ways even just this last week I got a call from a person who uh, has been in ministry for a long time he is about to their family is moving up to Greenwood in particular I won't tell you the whole story but we're looking for a PCA church in Greenwood and they had somehow got in touch with another pastor in the presbytery, and they put us put them in touch with us, and um, and and uh, there it is. God provides. That, in fact, is the the theme of this story. The name Mount Moriah. Moriah means God will provide or God sees. It's the theme of this whole story. And troubling as it is, it's the culmination. It's the culmination of Abraham's life that also can be summarized with a simple theme, God will provide. You think about Abraham and all of his uh, working, his, his his life decisions and all the story. It starts in Genesis 12, you know, leave this place and, and I will uh, make you a great nation. I will make you a blessing to the nations. I will give you all these things. And all of Genesis 12, all the way up to Genesis 22, is a story of Abraham wrestling with this, significant question, it's a single question really is how will God provide? Will God really do what he's told me uh, he will do? And Abraham wrestling with trying to find his own ways of, oh God, you need a little help here and I, I'll, I'll do this for you. And God constantly saying, no, I, I said I will provide and this is what I will do. Let me pray before we go too much further. It just helps me to get settled in, in this. Thank you for reading the text earlier and see the story. And, and, and uh, that'll give you an outline of how we'll look at this. Father, as we come to this, your word in this disturbing story, this disrupting story. Will you provide for us? That your Holy Spirit will guide us through this, that you will convict our heart, and help us to find ourselves in the disbelief that Abraham practiced through his life. But also to find encouragement in seeing your provision and also the culminating faith that Abraham displays at this point of his life. Jesus, will you help us to worship you in this, your word, we ask in your name. Amen. Soren Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher, is famous for writing a book on this called Fear, Fear and Trembling. And at the beginning of the book, by the way, I'm not a Kierkegaard expert, I'll just start. By the, but at the beginning of the book, he writes under a pseudonym, and he writes citing this, this older man who had for his entire life been fascinated with this story of three days walking with his son Isaac and two servants, lifting up his eyes and seeing the mount called Moriah, God's provision, and then walking up this mountain with his son, hand in hand, and then seeing God's miraculous provision there. Kierkegaard imagines four other scenarios that could be ways of interpreting this story, ways that give God an out. Abraham, in some situations, takes on the form of an evil father before his son so that his son doesn't hate God for what this is, he hates him. Or finding other ways to interpret this story, to get around the, the difficulty it poses of why would God command a person, especially Abraham, to go and sacrifice his own son when it stands diametrically opposed to everything else that God commands in his scriptures, both up to that point and after that point. I can't think of another place in all scripture where God tells somebody to do something that is so against his revealed will. Kierkegaard rightly wrestles with this question and acknowledges, he ultimately acknowledges that to to somehow skirt this and get around that difficult question, that most difficult question is to not do justice at all to the story and this older man and speculating about the fascination as a child of this story and still coming to it as an older man and saying that life now in his old age had divided what had been united in the child's pious simplicity. In other words, we can't come to this story, whatever age we are, and not find something new, difficult, troubling, challenging for our understanding of God, our understanding of who he's made us to be, our understanding of how he calls us, how he provides for us, and ultimately the question is how Jesus answers this great story of provision. Now my goal is not to exhaust this story because I'm still a man in middle age and Lord willing in my old age I will still come to this story and understand that life in all of its circumstances still continues to divide what is simple in our childlike understanding. I come to this text with a great humility. In fact, in studying for this and preparing for it, for to preach at another church just a few weeks ago, it was part of a, a series looking at the sweep of redemptive history. And so I was assigned this passage. It's not the easiest passage to prepare to preach on. And yet I think it was the most significant sermon preparation I've ever had in my 12, 13 years of ministry. The story is meant to jolt us. You can't read through that and sit idly by and say, isn't that nice? Why don't we go and do that? If the story hasn't jolted you, I'll I'll retell a little bit of it as we go on. The rough outline that I'm working from for this is to look at, first, the purpose of the story. Second, the difficulty of the story. And third, the beauty of the story. The difficulty of the story has three questions in particular that have been asked throughout history. that would be helpful for really getting in and letting God use the story to do something in our hearts and our minds. Derek Kidner is a commentator, brilliant commentator, tends to economize words in such a way. He says, from Abraham, the harrowing demand evokes only love and faith. Certain as he is that the foolishness of God is unexplored wisdom. In doing so, he also references C.S. Lewis. It says, The troublesome fact, the apparent absurdity, is precisely the one we must not ignore. Ten to one. It's in that covert the fox is lurking. There's not a question of suspense in the story. We all know how it ends. The question of the story is, what is God's purpose in including this? Notice that not only does this thing happen, this event, this life story happen, but it's told in Scripture. Scripture is famous. God is famous, especially in the ancient world. But even today for telling the things that other people would hide and bury away, not tell. And this is one of those stories that's not, not only happens, but it's told, and it's told for a purpose. And that purpose, the purpose is first that God provides in times of difficulty. As I said, over and over, God will provide. Abraham says it to his son. Where's the lamb, he says. God will provide. What's the name of the mountain? Mount Moriah it means God provides. God provides. God is aware of our needs and our difficulty. The purpose of the story is to communicate to the people of Israel when they were walking through the wilderness and ended up having to stay there camping for 40 years because of their own disobedience that God was going to provide for them. Provide the things that he had promised to Abraham, land and people. God will provide is all through this. And so that's the central purpose of this. But I wanna suggest that there's something else going on in this story. It's something that's deeper that I, I don't think I appreciated it much at all when I first came to study this passage again. And that is, who is Abraham now in chapter 22? He's not the Abraham of chapter 12. Or chapter 15 or chapter 17 or even chapter 21, if you're familiar with those stories. The question of Abraham's life is one of trust. It's one in some ways of an immaturity, even though here was a financially successful Wealthy, influential, head of not only his immediate family, but many servants. His nephew, Lot, came alongside of him, came with him. And yet throughout those first 11 chapters of God providing for himself through a people, Abraham is presented as one who is immature in his faith. God called him, he promised he would use him, he worked through him, he reveals so many of his weaknesses when he's asking the question, God, what about this city of Sodom that you say you're going to destroy, what what if there are still 40 people left there who are righteous and God patiently answers him, if there are 40, I won't destroy the city and as if Abraham was demonstrating himself as a five-year-old child, saying, God, what about if there are 30 people there? Will you destroy it? He says, I, I will not destroy it. And Abraham goes on and presses just reducing the number by 10 and then even by 5 until it gets down to 10. And God says, no, if even if, even if there are 10, I will not destroy the city. The story of Abraham, like so much of the Old Testament, doesn't present a hero of the faith. It presents an oftentimes stumbling, weak-hearted person whom God chooses to use so much like you and me. So that when you come to Hebrews 11 and the writer of Hebrews is describing this hall of faith. People who have lived out the faith God calls them to, Abraham is the one who gets the lion's share of the space. And chapter 22 is the pinnacle of his faith. It says, even when God called Abraham to go and sacrifice his son Isaac, Abraham was willing to do so because, he explains what Genesis 22 doesn't, Abraham fully believed that God could even raise him from the dead to fulfill his promises and work through him. The purpose is not only that God provides, but to present Abraham now in chapter 22 as a mature man of faith. As an exemplar for us, of what it is to trust God in difficult situations. It brings us to our second point. Let's look at, honestly, the difficulty of this passage. And there are three questions that are oftentimes asked in this passage. The first one is, why? Why would God instruct Abraham to do such a thing like this? And we need to be able to wrestle honestly with Why would God instruct Abraham? The second thing is this, why is Abraham... So willing to do it. There's no resistance in his voice. There's no, no hesitation. He's just that. And the third one is kind of interesting. It's a little bit lesser one. But did you notice that Abraham doesn't tell anyone he's going to do it? What he's going to do? He doesn't even tell Isaac what his plans are. But he doesn't tell Sarah. He just goes and does it. First one. Why does God instruct Abraham to do such a thing as this. And the short answer is that God doesn't give us all of the reasons. Why does he choose this instead of something else? And we, we need to be careful not to try to put into the text something that's not there. The clear answer is that there is something startling about this. It's meant... To jolt us. It's meant to serve as the climax of Abraham's life. It's meant to communicate to us this is important. In fact, if you read back on chapter 21, it's interesting to see the parallels of chapter 21 and 22. Chapter 21 deals with Hagar and Ishmael. If you're not familiar with that story, Hagar was a servant of Sarah, Abraham's wife, a part of the household. And when Sarah was not able to conceive a child, even when she was, uh, by the time she was 90 years old, actually before that, about about probably 14 years, but by the time she was past childbearing age, she says to Abraham, God's made us this promise. I think we need to take matters into our own hands. Abraham and Sarah agree that he would uh, have a child with Hagar and Ishmael's born. The story of chapter 21 tells the story of Abraham and Sarah sending Hagar and Ishmael away. And even shockingly, maybe not quite as shocking as this story, but close, when they take this plan to God, God says, yes, you should send Hagar and Ishmael, still a child, away. There are some interesting parallels before the story. Even the way God provides and says, uh, it's parallel God provides for Hagar and Ishmael when they're sent into the wilderness. They don't have anything. And in a very similar way to God providing the ram in this story, God provides there. But then when you come to chapter 22, It's not only that this is a a troubling thing that God would command somebody to go and kill his own son. But if you're a reader in ancient Israel and and looking back on these promises and and you see by sending Hagar and Ishmael away, Abraham and Sarah, they've burned the bridges. This was the other son. This was the way the backup plan And yet God has cleared out all the backup plans. Everything's riding now on Isaac. And again, God has just been building this up to this point of this shocking uh, story of, of Abraham being called to go and sacrifice Isaac. Now, Abraham's response, Abraham's response is, is equally troubling. Do you notice that there's not even a, a hint of, of hesitation, of, of um, questioning God at this point? I suspect that a number of you have heard interpretations of this story that go something like this. God at this point is testing Abraham to see if... Abraham loves God more than he loves his son Isaac. And the application goes something like this. If there's something in your life that you're not willing to sacrifice, then you need to love God more. But that's not anywhere in the story. It is true that we need to love God more than other things. But the story never presents a call for us to sacrifice the thing that we Love most. In fact, it's interesting to read through the story. I don't know if you noticed how many times at the end of a phrase where it's completely unneeded, not necessary. It refers to my son or his son or my father or his father. The affection in this passage between Abraham and his son is, is dripping, especially from verses 6 to 10. As the two leave the servant and they go up on the mountain and have this brief dialogue where Abraham says, My father, I I see the knife and I see the the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide my son. The, The language is over and over and the affection is there between the son and the father and the father and the son. And notice also that Isaac isn't resisting at any point in the story either. When even when Abraham still hasn't explained everything that's going on, the the words are not spoken. Isaac is tied up, and Abraham goes to cut his throat, presumably with the knife. It's an interesting little word they chose in the Hebrew to tell the story. It's more of a meat. Cleaver than a knife. It is graphic in its portrayal. And still, Isaac doesn't even seem to resist. There is a complete trust that Isaac has in his father and that his father, Abraham, has in God. What's troubling about Abraham's response is not the absence of distress. It's not the absence of affection. What's troubling about Abraham's response is how it convicts our own heart and our trust in God when he calls us to do particular things. Now hear me say clearly, God has never commanded another person, nor does he command any of us to physically harm our child. There's one other allowance in Scripture that's equally troubling. It's an interesting sermon for another time where the penalty of a son Uh, uh, particularly a firstborn penalty of of a son disobeying parents could be the death sentence. Not many people talk about this. I think we need to address some of these difficult passages in Scripture so that they don't undermine our faith when we come to them. The significance of that, I'll tell you very briefly, is, is in... Leads us to this beauty question, the third question that I have, the third point of this. It's understanding the economy that God had set up and that the people of that time lived in. Let me come back to that. Now let me just reiterate God doesn't call us to do physical harm to the people that we love or even the people that we hate. But what God does call us to oftentimes is to do things that seem to be that seem to be detrimental to ourselves or to other people. We don't see the way out of it. Financially, relationally. It calls us to enter into difficult situations and to be agents of peace when we put ourselves in harm's way. As in the parable of the Good Samaritan, God calls us into situations. He doesn't give us the full story. He doesn't tell us how everything is going to work out, but He gives us the promise that He will provide and that He is good. Hebrews 11, before it tells the story of Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice says that Abraham was looking to the city with foundation. A sure, steadfast foundation. In his faith, in his longing, he was looking to that because he knew that was a city that could not be destroyed. It was a place of surety, of foundation, of safety. And he knew that no place else could truly provide that. The third question, why does not Abraham tell anyone again? We don't really know the full answer. But I I think we can see that Abraham had come to the point in his life where he could honestly say, if God told me to do this, I need to do it. And other people aren't going to be able to understand why. Maybe even Sarah, probably not even Isaac. is exercising this kind of mature faith which brings us to our third point and that is the beauty of the story and the beauty is found in particular in particular in Abraham's mature faith and God's provision now what do i mean by that God says i myself has, have sworn If you understand something of ancient culture, you know that the oldest son would inherit the lion's share of the property. It's there in the prodigal son. The older son would get two-thirds. The younger son would get one-third. We look at that from our, our cultural standpoint and we say it was unfair, not only to the women, but to the younger sons. But there's something going on in the culture there that we have to understand to appreciate the beauty of this story and so much of ancient culture. And that is that the land around a family farm was the primary place of security and provision for the family. People who had a lot of children, which tended to be a number of people, some people had difficulty having children like Abraham and Sarah and like many of us have had. But many people had many children, and one of the ways that was sure disaster for a family was to divide up the property into ever smaller plots in such a way that there was battling, there wasn't security, there wasn't enough. This hinted even at when Abraham and his nephew Lot both move and they say, there's not enough land, we have to separate. It was a way of ensuring the family's safety and security. It's why that death penalty was there And that was in particular if an older son who was responsible for the whole family was showing himself to not be faithful in doing that. He legally would be the one who would inherit not only the farm, but the watch watchfulness, the care for all the farm. And so even though there's not a single case in the Bible of this death penalty being enacted, it was given as a provision that a father or a family could use if there was an older son who was indeed the prodigal, the one who was going to not care for the property. It's interesting that we talk about this story, we call it the sacrifice of Isaac sometime, but Isaac isn't sacrificed. More accurately, some people refer to it as the binding of Isaac because he was tied up. That is accurate. But I think that the most accurate way of describing this is to say it's the sacrifice of Abraham. You see, because in Isaac, all the promises that God had given to Abraham were found in this one son, the heir, the seed. Abraham and his seed is one way of describing all of Genesis 12 through 22 and really all of the rest of the Bible. Abraham and his seed, who is ultimately Jesus. When God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, he's not just killing somebody else, which is which is horrific to think about. Abraham is losing, potentially losing, every one of the promises that God had made to him in a single act. He's giving everything that he is when he sacrifices Isaac. Not just because he loves the boy and has affection for it, but because he has trusted in God's promises and everything's wrapped up in this one boy. The beauty of the story is that God is saying, I will provide this for you, all these things for you. Not based on what Abraham has done, not based on what Sarah has done, not based on who Isaac is or what he would do, but on God's promises to them. And so Abraham surely looked at that and said, it seems like all hope is lost, or at least that's what it seems like he would have, but Abraham is going to the mountain, not with that thought, he's going to the mountain with the thought God will provide. And that mountain, Mount Moriah, is the exact same mountain that Jesus walks up carrying wood on his back as Isaac did, with a hope that is very similar to Abraham's that God will provide. Now Jesus knew. Jesus knew the plan because he was part of making the plan. He had made the plan with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But still everyone else looking around was asking the question, what is God gonna do with this? All the disciples, they fell away. All hope seems lost. Jesus fulfills with a faithfulness that exceeds even that of Abraham, this exemplar of faith in being the provision, the better ram, the provision for all of us that we would not die the death that we deserve, but would live not just a life we didn't deserve, but be called into the family of God and be part of the promise of the heirs of Abraham. We are children of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. You're one of them and so am I. When you read through this again, let it, let it give you an awe. Let it trouble you. but also see the beauty that God has provided. Called us, given reason to hope and to exercise and to live into this great faith that he's called us to.